0: Podcast number 506 for August 14th, 2016. This week, people who are looking for ways to learn but aren't concerned about earning a degree from learning have lots of free resources to choose from on the Internet. Analysis of paper install schemes reveals just how these annoying ride-along bits of crapware can be added to your computer when you think you're installing just a single application and how the business monetizes itself. In short circuits, this week seemed to be a good time to mention some of the useful Mac based utilities I've been adding now that I once again have a Mac. Among them, some old friends from Windows, the VLC video player and Crash Plan, for example. But there are some new Mac only programs such as Atex, Name Changer, and Text Wrangler. In spare parts, only on the website, new techniques promise to make iris recognition a better way to validate users on all sorts of devices in many kinds of businesses. Cliff's Notes is starting a process that will place much of the company's instructional materials online, and a company that promotes a way to manage your child's electronic allowance seems not to have noticed that the company that provides the service went out of business last month. You know, you could get a complete education from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology for free. MIT OpenCourseWare publishes materials from 2,340 courses on its website, and the courses are available to anyone. This isn't a new idea, but when the project started 15 years ago, the Internet was a lot less universal than it is now, and MIT is just one of several no-cost learning opportunities. The school describes it this way. MIT OpenCourseWare is a free and open publication of material from thousands of MIT courses covering the entire MIT curriculum and used by millions of learners and educators around the world. There are, however, a couple of catches. There are no tests, students receive no credit, there are no degrees. So if your goal is learning for the sake of learning, or learning to pick up some new skills you can use, it's an outstanding opportunity. If you're looking for a degree, not so much. MIT President L. Rafael Reif says OCW drew on a tradition of open sharing at MIT that stretched back at least to the 1950s. More than 125 million learners have used the system. OCW offers both undergraduate and graduate-level classes. Some of the class lectures are available as videos, but OCW Associate Dean of Digital Learning Cecilia de Oliveira says it takes a significant amount of time and funding to support a course with full video lectures. So the program depends on donations for funding, along with support from MIT, endowment income, and corporate and foundation support. Nearly 50% of the students are from North America, 4% from Central and South America, 17% from Europe and Northern Asia, 6% from Africa, 9% from South Asia, and 20% from Southeast Asia. There's a nearly even split between self-learners and students, self-learners at 43%, students at 42%. About 9% of the users are educators, 6% are listed as other. The most recent statistics available for site usage are from March. Nearly 1.6 million visitors viewed more than 9.3 million pages, downloaded 173,000 files. When you visit the site you can drill down through the menus starting with topics or course numbers or departments. I started with engineering, selected computer science as the subtopic, and then chose applications and data structures as the specialty. The result was a long list of available undergraduate and graduate courses. I selected introduction to algorithms and the site displayed a summary then offered to let me start the course right then and there. If you'd like more information, check out MIT OpenCourseWare. There's a link to that website from the TechBiter Worldwide website. But MIT isn't the only source of no-cost learning. I've talked previously about language learning site Duolingo and about Khan Academy, which is intended primarily for high school students preparing for college. Khan Academy receives support from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, If you need a quick refresher course on algebra or geometry or calculus, it's a great place to start. The site has math and science resources for students as young as kindergarten and first grade. And there are lots of other options if you're looking for knowledge. For example, Harvard Extension, MIT's crosstown rival, they provide some excellent resources. EdX is a site that provides links to numerous university courses all around the place. Stanford Online, Here, some of the classes require iTunes, most though can be completed using just your browser. Coursera. This is similar to edX in that it works with many different universities, museums, and trusts to provide content. If you visit Open Culture, you'll find more than 1,000 lectures, videos, and podcasts from universities in the U.S. and around the world. Udemy, which is similar to Coursera, it though offers the ability to design your own course plan and here not all of the content is free. Academic Earth lists courses by subject and school. If you have something specific in mind, that might be a better way to find what you're looking for. Open Yale Courses offers many videos of campus lectures. UC Berkeley Class Central. This is smaller than some of the other sites, but it includes additional information that learners will probably find to be helpful. There is Code Academy, If your primary objective is to learn about computer programming, there's a good place to start. Or Code, similar to Code Academy, that site's objective is to teach computer-related subjects. Other useful educational sites include podcasts from the University of London, TED Educational Programs, and podcasts from the British Broadcasting Corporation. So if you want to learn something, there is no shortage of resources. And you'll find links to all of the sites I've mentioned on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Understanding the business model for unwanted software might help security teams devise better ways to block the stuff. A team of researchers from Google and the New York University Tandon School of Engineering offers a view into shady practices that deliver computer crud that comes bundled with legitimate downloads. This actually is something that occurs more often than attempts to plant malware. Research suggests that some of the affiliates that distribute such software might be complicit in the scheme, but still have layers of plausible deniability that they are installing unwanted software. Few computer users have been spared the nuisance of unwanted software. Following what appears to be a legitimate software update or download, A barrage of advertisements overruns the screen or flashing pop-ups warn about the presence of malware, demanding, of course, that you purchase what is often fraudulent antivirus software. On other occasions, the system's default browser is hijacked, redirecting to ad-laden pages. In many cases, users can avoid these tricks by carefully reading every screen that is presented during the installation process and then explicitly selecting the advanced options for installation instead of taking the recommended settings. Google reports tracking more than 60 million attempted installs per week, three times the number of attempts to install malware. Despite that, the source of these installs and the business model that makes them profitable weren't really understood. The researchers analyzed the link between commercial pay-per-install practices and the distribution of unwanted software. This is a topic I have discussed previously. SourceForge, which was once a very good source of freeware, open-source applications, and shareware, started bundling junkware along with their installers in 2013, sometimes without the developer's permission or knowledge. SourceForge had built a huge amount of goodwill by being a reliable source for software. But Dice Holdings bought both Slashdot and SourceForge from Geeknet in 2012. Less than a year later, the crapware was added. SourceForge now says, and I quote, We present third-party offers only with a few projects where it is explicitly approved by the project developer. Even so, I currently use SourceForge only if there is no other source for the application I want to download. Google research scientist Kurt Thomas and NYU assistant professor of computer science and engineering Damon McCoy led a team of researchers from Safe Browsing and Chrome Security to investigate commercial paper install schemes as the main vehicle for moving unwanted software from developers to unwitting computer users. The resulting research paper, called Investigating Commercial Pay-Per-Install and Distribution of Unwanted Software, was presented at USENIC's Security Symposium in Austin this week. Commercial Pay-Per-Install software is a monetization scheme that installs third-party applications, often consisting of unwanted software such as adware, scareware, and browser hijacking programs, along with the legitimate application the user wanted. The developers of the software you want should receive a payment from the third party install business. In the case of SourceForge, that might not always have been the case. When users install the package, they get the desired piece of software as well as a stream of unwanted programs. Most of the installer applications allow users to opt out of the extra features, but finding out how to do that can be difficult. The instructions are often presented in tiny, light colored type and unwanted applications are always selected by default and recommended. The group's research cites reports that say commercial paper install is a highly lucrative global business, with one outfit reporting $460 million in revenue in 2014 alone. Note that this revenue reflects a mix of both legitimate and unwanted software downloads. McCoy explains it this way, If you've ever downloaded a screensaver or other similar feature for your laptop, you've seen a terms and condition page pop up where you consent to the installation. Buried in the text that nobody reads is information about the bundle of unwanted software programs in the package you're about to download. The presence of a consent form allows the business to operate legally but McCoy classifies the extra applications as treading a fine line between malware and unwanted software. The report explains that pay-per-install businesses operate through a network of affiliates. These are brokers who make the deals that bundle advertisements with popular software applications. When that has been done, links to the installer packages are placed on well-trafficked sites where they're likely to be clicked. Some legitimate developers don't know that their products are being bundled with unwanted software, but those who do and who agree to the arrangement can earn as much as $2 per install. The researchers analyzed packages from four pay-per-install affiliates by routinely downloading the software packages and closely examining the components. Among the more important discoveries was the degree to which such downloaders are personalized to maximize the chances that their payload will be delivered. When an installer runs, the user's computer is fingerprinted. This determines which adware is available to run on that particular machine. Additionally, the downloader searches for antivirus protection, factoring in the presence or absence of such protection in its approach. They do their best to bypass antivirus so the program will intentionally inject those elements, whether it's adware or scareware, that are the likeliest to evade whichever antivirus program is running, McCoy said. Google routinely updates its safe browsing protection in the Chrome browser to warn users when they visit questionable pages, but the paper install affiliates simply adjust their tactics to avoid detection. The researchers say these actions imply that paper install affiliates are directly catering to the unwanted software market, avoiding user protections while intentionally delivering crapware under a thin veil of consent. NYU's Damon McCoy says the group wants to expose these business practices so people are less likely to get duped into flooding their computers with programs that they never wanted. If you'd like to read the full report, I have a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. In short circuits, let's call this one free-for-all on the Mac. Utility applications, for example freeware, donationware, and shareware, all bring many useful features to Windows computers, and these specialized small applications are often featured right here on TechBiter worldwide. They are just as important to Mac users, so I thought I'd take a look at some of the key free applications for the Mac. You'll probably notice some crossover with Windows applications, for example this one, VLC from Videoland. It's the media player that does everything for everyone. Apple's QuickTime is already on your Mac, of course, but VLC does so much more and does it well. If you watch any kind of video on your Mac, you really should have VLC. And it's not just a video player. There's a video conversion option, support for playlists, audio playback, and a host of other features. In other words, VLC on a Mac includes all of the neat features that it brings to a Windows PC. Even if you never use any of those features, it is still a great video player. How about text expansion? Just about everybody has some bits of text that they type frequently. Maybe it's just your name and address, or the current date and time. Maybe the name or description of a product or service, or possibly you just frequently misspell a word and would like to have it corrected whenever you misspell it. On a Windows machine, Macro Express Pro handles these tasks and a lot more but Macro Express Pro doesn't work on a Mac. AText does and it costs just $5. You can of course download a free trial version and use it before you pay. After using it for less than an hour, I paid. It's not as robust as Macro Express Pro because AText has been designed only as a text expander, but it is certainly worth the small fee if you find yourself repeatedly typing bits of text. And back up well, Apple has Time Machine, but it's not a robust backup application. Everybody needs a reliable backup system. I have found CrashPlan to be just that on my Windows systems. It is also available to Mac users. CrashPlan is both versatile and easy to use. If you back up to an external hard drive, it's free. And if you want to back up your Mac to CrashPlan's cloud-based servers, the fee is just $60 a year. Online backups are encrypted. You can also use CrashPlan for free if both you and a friend install the software, and then back up your files to each other's computers via the Internet. By the way, you'll find links to all of these applications in this week's program on the TechBiter Worldwide website. You already know I'm a fan of plain text editors to compose articles that'll later be used in Word documents or InDesign documents or on websites. An application such as Ultra Edit Studio on the PC eliminates the temptation to format text and forces the writer to concentrate on the message. The Mac equivalent of Ultra Edit Studio is BB Edit at $50. If you like the idea but you don't want to part with any money, there is Text Wrangler. It is a very powerful free text editor. Both are from bare bones software. Probably the best comparison for Text Wrangler is the powerful but free Windows text editor, Notepad++. In addition to writing articles, a plain text editor is essential for anybody who wants to write code. For example, JavaScript, Java, C++, Python, Perl, or PHP. Text Wrangler includes syntax coding and many other features in BBEdit. It omits its Big Brother's high-end features, such as inclusion of the Consolas regular specialized code editing font, the ability to read and write files stored inside a zip archive, set of HTML tools for website developers, text completion, support for development tools, and a lot more. In other words, if you're a developer, you should probably spend the money and buy BBEdit. Otherwise, just stick with Text Wrangler. And you've noticed that digital cameras name files with sequential numbers. After all, they can't be expected to know that you're photographing the Grand Staircase in the Metropolitan Museum of Art while you're on vacation in New York City. Sequential numbers are great from the camera's point of view, less so from yours. An application such as Adobe's Photoshop Lightroom can automatically rename images when you import them, but if you don't use a photo management application that renames files, a file renamer is a handy tool to have. On the Mac, NameChanger is a highly versatile tool that can handle simple replacement renaming, sequential renaming, and even complex renaming using regular expressions. There are other situations in which you might find yourself with a group of files that have nonsense names, nonsense at least to humans. NameChanger is a Mac utility that has one job, and it does that one job very well. It renames a list of files so that the names are meaningful to humans. And I hope spare parts will be meaningful to you. It's only on the website. This week, new techniques promise to make iris recognition a better way to validate users on all sorts of devices in many kinds of businesses. Cliff's Notes is starting a process that'll place much of the company's instructional materials online. And a company that promotes a way to manage your child's electronic allowance seems not to have noticed that the company that provides the service it's managing went out of business last month.